that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Hello and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I am the editor of the North American Anglican Journal, and I'm joined today by Andrew Brazier. Good morning. This is Andrew Brazier. I serve as a deacon and as the chancellor in the jurisdiction of the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, which is part of the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. Excellent. And Andrew, you and I have been going through a book by Paul Elmer Moore with uh, Father Isaac for the last several episodes. And today we are going to take a break from Mr. Moore. And what are we going to be doing today? You know, today we're going to talk about what is it that makes Anglicanism Anglicanism? And what are the differences between say, the Anglican Communion, and the other church traditions that many people are a part of. Right. What makes Anglicans special? And we, <laughs> we often feel special, but we don't always have a, a, a way to describe why, and, uh, and maybe why someone might consider uh, the Anglican tradition over uh, another one. We happen to think that it gets things right where other traditions maybe don't. Uh, but we ought to be able to say why we think that. So that's what we're up to today, right? Absolutely. So uh, to start off, uh, we thought we might frame this conversation uh, in a sort of compare and contrast uh, mode thought that might be helpful to say, how are Anglicans like, and then insert a particular tradition, uh, specifically ones that maybe people are, want to wonder how we are like. And uh, one of the things that I hear the most from my, or most often from my Protestant uh, evangelical friends is, how are you guys like, or unlike the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if you hear that very often, Andrew, but I, I hear it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most common thing you hear from someone who's coming from a uh, Protestant background. You know, they, they look at uh, Anglicans, you know, at least Anglican worship, and uh, immediately they see something akin to uh, the worship in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition. Right. You know, things like liturgy and people wearing collars and um, holy tables with, uh, you know, uh, sacraments going on. That's all that Catholic stuff I learned about when I was a young evangelical boy. And, And generally speaking, I think for many people, it is still considered all that Catholic stuff. And while Anglicans are not afraid of the word Catholic, 
I think we probably want to be careful to distinguish between what is Roman Catholic and what is Catholic that we as Anglicans uh, hold to. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, to my friend who's asking that question, I've had several ask me that question that, you know, how we are like Roman Catholic is certainly in keeping the tradition uh, of having uh, vestments, although they are different uh, from the Roman Catholic uh, practice of worship. And uh, we certainly are like Roman Catholics in the sense that uh, now the Anglican Church has typically Sunday uh, communion service. Uh, in the past, it was more typical to have a morning prayer service, which is a little bit more similar to your Protestant uh, worship service, although there's definitely, it is a liturgical service, which is different from Protestantism. But uh, now you typically see Sunday worship having uh, Holy Communion, so taking the bread, taking the wine, and receiving those, uh, but obviously also having a, a regular sermon during these services. And so where we're like Roman Catholics in regards to worship is kind of the look and the feel, but we get to differences when we move over to our theology. Right. Yeah. The, the sort of, you could say the surface texture from a, from a distance, uh, seems very similar with Roman Catholicism, especially if that, if that's not your personal tradition, if you're, you were raised in a tradition that's more Baptist or free church or, non-denominational then this is all going to sort of have a similar look to it um so yeah i I agree on on all points um so you were talking about things like liturgy and vestments and um what in what way would you say that uh we're the same or and then maybe you know something that makes us stand apart in, in that regard as well. Yeah. If, if there's uh, anything at all. No, excellent question. And, uh, you know, the sacraments uh, is a great example of where we're the same and we are different. Uh, we're the same in that we recognize sacraments of the church. We recognize baptism. We recognize in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we recognize the communion service, the Lord's Supper, you know, uh, Eucharist taking and eating uh, the body and blood of Christ in the form of the bread and the wine. Now, where we differ on those two sacraments is exactly what is happening. You know, the Roman Catholic uh, will say that in baptism, you are uh, immediately uh, regenerated. You are immediately uh, different and changed. The Anglican Church has some nuanced approaches on that, which delve more towards the Reformed side and some closer to the Lutheran side. And without getting too close to those particulars, we don't believe that you're automatically, you know, changed, you know, once you're baptized, you are, you know, now uh, completely and wholly saved. There is some room for question marks in the 39 articles in Anglicanism as to whether or not that uh, baptism takes hold, for lack of a better term, depending upon does does it produce faith? You know, does your faith show itself through your works? Going to communion, to the Eucharist, there's a difference in theology as to what happens. We can agree that during the supper, we are receiving the body and blood of Christ. We are becoming a part of him. He's becoming a part of us. We have that in our prayer book. 
we have it in the fact that our 39 articles states that the bread and wine are not mere tokens, you know, when it's being used as the sacrament. But, and this key but in the, the change of theology is, does that mean that bread and wine has been transformed, transubstantiated, the word that the Roman Catholics use, so that all that remains is, although you see bread and wine, is actually the literal physical body and blood of Jesus Christ on that altar. That's where we disagree. It becomes more of a, of a mystery to Anglicans as to what is occurring. But what we can say is that we spiritually receive Christ. Now, the how, you know, why, and the precise definition, we don't get so minute into the details and the philosophy of it that we say this is how it happens and this is when it changes. But we have the same faith of the ancient uh, fathers, the ancient Christians, that we're receiving Christ. You know, if we have faith, and that's another key distinctive, is that if we have faith, we can't just go up there saying that I'm going to get, you know, the body and blood of Christ, despite how I have acted, how I lived, you know, what is in my heart. Uh, because you have St. Paul's uh, admonition and his warning that do not take it lightly. You could be drinking damnation unto yourself by taking this cup, uh, the cup of communion. So there's a little bit more nuanced. I know I'm throwing a lot at, you know, a <laughs> listener who may be thinking, you know, what is Anglicanism? But the long story short of it is, is look at it this way. The Roman Catholics have a precise definition that, you know, things have changed. You're now receiving the body and blood of Christ. Anglicans can say, you know, we're receiving Christ. We're receiving him through the, the act of the sacrament, but it's a more spiritual and less defined way. Now, the differences in the sacrament, we only have two that we call the gospel sacraments, the two sacraments that are Lord instituted. The Roman Catholic Church will say that there are five other sacraments, including marriage, including uh, ordination, uh, you know, uh, also including uh, confession itself, and they continue to define what is a sacrament, where Anglicans stop at the two gospel sacraments, and then in the 39 articles mention that these other so-called sacraments you know, do exist, but we don't recognize it as an actual sacrament necessarily. Yeah, and in some of these, um, hmm, I think for the friend from the Baptist evangelical non-denominational tradition, this can all sound like uh, splitting hairs, maybe. Absolutely. Because if you don't believe that there's anything like a sacrament that happens in the Christian life, then who cares, right? Um, and, and maybe one of the ways to to show the differences in how we view the sacraments from the way Rome does is maybe actually just in the way that they're practiced. Um, and I think one really notable example, and, and I guess I should say maybe even before continuing, we should we should kind of both declare that. When we we're to, we're doing our very best to represent Anglicanism as it is quote unquote classically understood, and with although within Anglican churches you will find people called Anglo-Catholics who are going to say nope I pretty much believe exactly what Rome does, um, and, and I think that that is. It, at the very least, in violation of the the, the theological convictions that in the confessions that um, 
that the Anglican Church has been beholden to since its inception, or at least since the uh, Reformation when we started to call it the Anglican Church. But all of that is to say, we're, when it comes to the differences between how Anglicans uh, treat Holy Communion, for example, the 39 Articles specifically say that they're, they're not to be um, carried about and used in, in a way that Rome does, specifically with the use of, say, a monstrance and what is sometimes is called within Roman Catholicism uh, adoration. So where the, the, the host, the bread, that has been, in their minds... Um, uh, oh, the word is slipping my mind. Transubstantiated uh, is now. It, it's as though we got Jesus. You know, we we caught him. Yep. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like I picture like uh, the like Ghostbusters. You know, like they got him in the little thing. You know, and now we're going to place him in front of our church, and we're going to use this meal what was intended as a meal, and this is all very clear from the Anglican formularies, uh, for a different purpose, this, a sort of to bask in his presence in a, in a way that doesn't seem to be uh, what was intended in the New Testament and, uh, and certainly seems foreign from uh, the early church practice. So there, there's another difference. Um, for Anglicans, it, the, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, this is a meal to be shared. Yes, Christ's body and blood is present, um, but it's a, meal, it's a meal for the family. And it's not something that is, can be instrumentalized or thought of in such an instrumental way as it tends to be done in Roman Catholicism. Absolutely, and I'm right now. I'm just standing in awe that you made a Ghostbuster reference to <laughs> Roman Catholic theology. That's impressive. I think yeah. we ought to just end the podcast here. But, uh, <laughs> well, but no, no, yeah, no, no offense intended. I just, I, I've always sort of thought, you know, coming from the Anglican perspective, and I have many Roman Catholic friends, but I've always thought it was just odd to, to sort of this whole move that to oh well jesus showed up and now we're going to try to catch him and use him for some other stuff while he's here you know it just to me i guess just as a midwesterner it seems kind of rude but <laughs> <laughs> but that's just that's just me uh but maybe we should move on um another big difference and maybe we could say worship wise investment wise um, the biggest difference between Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism is exactly how these different beliefs about the sacraments tend to show up in the liturgy, and the fact that for classical Anglicans, the use of the classical Book of Common Prayer um, is going to be the rule and guide for all this stuff. Yeah, I don't know how much more needs to be said about that at this time uh, other than to say you know within Anglican and Roman Catholic circles you're going to have your classical prayer book folks on one side and your Tridentine you know Latin mass people on the other 
just as you're going to have modern liturgies um, in both camps. Yeah. So, and I would say that's a good caveat that like for anyone who's listening to this show who's trying to get a taste of like what is Anglicanism, if you go and visit, and you should go visit churches when you're trying to figure out like what do they believe, you're going to be surprised. You're going to come to Anglican churches and think you're in a Baptist church. Go to Anglican churches and think you're in a, a Roman Catholic church. Yeah. You're going to go to Roman Catholic churches and think the same thing. I mean, it has absolutely shocked me where I go and visit a, a Roman Catholic parish and I'm like, this seems almost like Protestant worship. You know, it's very contemporary. So, with that disclaimer being said, you know, you, if you really want to get a feel for both traditions on how they traditionally are, uh, you should try to find more of a uh, a classic type parish for each one so else you're listening to us and you're thinking that's not what i'm seeing down the street for either one of these faith traditions so there's my disclaimer <laughs> right yeah it's it just because they've got the the name doesn't mean that uh that particular incarnation is going to be representative of the classical or or maybe main mainstream uh tradition Within the tradition, I guess. Absolutely. Um, another thing, polity, hierarchy. We have priests, they have priests. We have bishops, they have bishops. They have a pope, dot, dot, dot. We've got a queen. <laughs> hey, all right. <laughs> um, which, of course, is... Uh, you know, alarms are going off for all the constitutional <laughs> conservative uh, conservatives out there who um, did their best to get away from a monarch. But uh, it, what what more could we say about um, whether or not Anglicans have a figurehead? I mean, obviously in England, if you're a member of the Church of England, there's the Queen, and then there's that other fellow in Canterbury. <laughs> that other fellow yeah and so i would say you know we're kind of talking about anglicanism probably more in an american context because i assume that's where more of our listeners are but i think right. it's worth saying for the for the history that you know the criticism that we get as anglicans is well don't you just have like you know the king or the queen whoever is in office that's your pope because old henry the eighth needed a divorce mm. and without getting too deep in the rabbit hole really you need to go and look at elizabeth and see how her Reformation changed the status of, uh, of being the spring governor of the Church of England. And you notice that for the Church of England, while she has to ratify acts, and acts go through the parliament, so anything the church does does have to be ratified, what you see in practice is uh, the royalty has, since the Elizabethan uh, ever era, has never really you know, put its foot down uh, in terms of ruling the church like, say, uh, a pope uh, rules. There's definitely a difference there. It's much more mm -hmm. uh, organized to, to kind of bring in the Eastern Orthodox for a second. A little bit more, you know, not completely, a little bit more like the Eastern Orthodox on having uh, the bishops uh, organized in dioceses, which, for those who are new to Anglicanism, is a fancy word for just saying, you know, a, a group, a section, a geographic section typically of the church so I'm in the state of Alabama, so in theory there isn't one, but in theory there'd be a diocese of Alabama. So that bishop, you know, is governing the churches, the parishes within Alabama, and every parish you know, either has a priest or maybe a deacon in charge. 
and all the bishops in happier times in happier times yes (laughs) and then all the bishops across the united states let's say get together and represent their diocese uh, in a national church so that's what you have in the church of england is akin to that system and when it comes to debate when it comes to controversy the bishops gather together they typically have laity representing uh uh, laity representatives as well in order to get the business done of the church. And this is kind of a, evoking what happened in the ecumenical councils, which if you're not familiar with those are, these were large gatherings. There was at least seven of them uh, throughout the history of the church where bishops from across the world would come representing their national churches in order to uh, to hash out uh, what was uh heresy and what was orthodox teaching and it's where we get the nicene creed which is something that liturgical churches typically uh, uh, repeat and state during their worship services and so to make a long story short the polity of anglicanism is much more uh, conciliar of, of really coming together as a church with the bishops and although there is an archbishop typically who is quote unquote you know in charge of the church he does not have the same power as a pope of pronouncing this is doctrine or this is how we shall do things. A lot more of a representative of the national church. Uh, right, as a figurehead. And actually, um, that that term that Roman Catholics use for the pope, which is the first among equals, is probably more true in the Anglican context of, of having... yes. Um, an archbishop, or uh, in the case of um, you know the Episcopal Church or other other churches um, that are Anglican, will sometimes have a presiding bishop, right? So they preside over this national synod that brings all the different um, all the different dioceses together. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does have a, a sort of federal conciliar model, which, uh, you know, even Rome had uh, a, something akin to this um, debatably before the Reformation. And, and, you know, once a more ultramontane, uh, which means over the mountain, uh, which is... Uh, which also means uh, all the pa- power it leaves the local place and goes over to Rome, basically. And so you have this, you know, ultramontanism growing at the time of the Reformation, probably in a reaction to the fact that people felt like they were losing control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Anglicanism maintains this older model of polity in that way. And as you mentioned... This makes us very similar um, in polity to Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, those of our friends who uh, know about Eastern Orthodoxy or are Eastern Orthodox may say, okay, so you're not Roman Catholic. Um, You don't have a pope. Good, because, hey, if if there's anything that Protestants and Orthodox can uh, agree on, it's that this pope (laughs) thing is a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so, I find that um, among friends who are sort of aware of Eastern Orthodoxy or maybe curious from an evangelical perspective, 
Um, this question arises quite a bit. Okay, so you're non-papal Catholics, so why not join the Eastern Orthodox Church? Mm-hmm. Um, and and as far as you know, the different the different um, things that we've been discussing here, polity, hierarchy, we're pretty similar. Um, but what about worship? What about sacraments? What about our confessional beliefs? Yes, in regards to the Eastern Orthodox, you know, historically, uh, there's been a lot of communication between not only the Church of England, but also the Anglican Communion at large and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And we're talking about polity and how we're a little bit more akin to the Eastern Orthodox churches. And I say churches because there's not really the Orthodox Church. It's really a group mm-hmm. of national churches. Uh, Russian, uh, you got uh, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Greece. Uh, you have uh, the church that's in Constantinople. Right. Autocephalous churches. Exactly. Yes. And those churches share a common doctrine. Uh, they have their own internal doctrinal battles uh, of a lesser nature, just like in the Anglicanism. We can agree on certain principles, and then we have some viewpoints we disagree with internally. But where the Eastern Orthodox will look at us and and say, what is up with you? What they're going to be looking at is our reformational principles, which if you have a copy of the 39 articles, it's when you start to hit uh, Article uh, 11 on the justification of man, and going from there, discussing justification, what are good works, that's when you start to hit kind of the trigger points uh, for someone who's Eastern Orthodox. And not always, necessarily, because quite frankly, there's Eastern Orthodox uh, saints and theologians in the past who have sounded, dare I say, quite Protestant. But uh, especially in the modern emphasis of the Eastern Church, there's not, uh, there's never been a real controversy to really highlight what is justification, you know, what are the nature of works. And so where a Protestant or an Anglican is having a conversation or dialogue with an Eastern Orthodox brother or sister, they're going to run into disagreement as to the nature of justification. Is it by faith alone? You know, are the good works stemming from a faith, a justified faith? Instead, the Eastern Orthodox is going to start to sound to an Anglican or a Protestant more akin to a Roman Catholic. And that's where we'll start to have our disagreements. So with polity, we can, in hierarchy, the, the Anglicans are going to have a lot more agreement. When you get to the doctrine, there's areas in which we agree, just like with Roman Catholics. The Eastern Orthodox, as a matter of fact, on the sacrament of communion, of Eucharist, sound much more like Anglicans, uh, in the sense that you cannot define what is happening uh, in the bread and wine. Although there's some Eastern Orthodox who do use the word transubstantiation, but classically they didn't use that word, and they're much more saying, you know, much more akin to saying it's a mystery, we don't know what happens at all. Right. We're a little bit more defined in the Anglican Western tradition of saying, well, it's a spiritual presence, you know, it's something's happening during the course of uh, communion itself uh, with the recipient, either in the heart by faith or by receiving and having uh, faith. But when it comes to our theology, that's where we start to divide and separate on those classic uh, reformational principles. Um, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, it's not just a reformational principles, but to some extent, there is still this east-west divide in sensibility, isn't there? 
right? The 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 attraction to uh, drawing lines and making connections in the West, where um, in the East they're sort of proud of what they call an apophatic approach to theology. Absolutely, you may want to define that for our listener. But you're absolutely yeah, right. it's the the way of negation, which is to say, it's a uh, what is true about this dogma is so mysterious and so beyond comprehension that all we can really do is kind of walk around it and say what it isn't, what isn't true about God, what isn't true about the way that um, Christ is present in the Eucharist. And you do find uh, strains of this within the Anglican tradition early on, um, in part because, uh, you know, people like Queen Elizabeth and, and through the Elizabethan settlement, you had this sense in which, um, and this is going to be an issue when we uh, discuss how, how we are and are not like other Protestants, um, in which she d- said she didn't want to peer into men's souls. She didn't, she wanted to create a church where people could have small differences of opinion, but where they could participate on their large um, portions of agreement. Um, And that's not to say that we don't have confessions, that they don't have specific things to say, um, only that uh, we, although we're Western, although we're a Protestant or, you know, definitely children of the Reformation, um, to some extent, we do have more of a, an emphasis on mystery than I would say technically like the Presbyterian or yeah. Luth- Lutheran um, you know, divines would tend to. And I think this is a good point to, to kind of flesh out just a little bit more, Jesse, because like with our Presbyterian uh, brethren, they're a lot more defined. And I respect it. I understand they're taking that. Uh, medieval tradition of scholasticism and they're running that thread on of logic it's a very logical mm-hmm. tradition and I respect it for that and have more definitions you know a, a stricter obedience to their confession which is typically the Westminster Confession of Faith and even for our Lutheran uh, brothers and sisters they have the entire book of, of Concord uh, which I've got a copy of, you know, very substantial yep. in going through their doctrines and very well thought out. I mean, I've learned a lot from our common heritage and our common doctrines from both of these traditions. But where Anglicanism differs is, I think you said it very well, that Queen Elizabeth, through the conclusion of the English Reformation in her reign, what she has done is basically helped create a broad, reformed Catholicism. In which the broad consistent—excuse me—the broad consensus of the Reformed faith, spreading from Lutheran Germany to Reformed Switzerland, where those doctrines agreed, along with the classic and ancient Catholic doctrines of the Church, are melded together to basically say, "This is where we stand," and it's reflected in those 39 Articles of having that broad consensus of. What I would argue, since I'm biased, obviously, is the mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis speaks of, that mm. reaches back into the past, but also embraces the reformational emphasis on scripture and uh, justification. 
and then also uh, puts it in a form of worship through the Book of Common Prayer, so that the average laity doesn't have to get their, you know, you know, head in the sky and in the clouds in order to understand it. It's simply worshiping and hearing that biblical doctrine, uh, right? You know, day in and day out through the daily offices or through the uh, Sunday worship of, of Holy Communion. Yes. Yep. Yes and yes. Uh, I agree with uh, everything you're saying there. I think, as you well put, the the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, when it comes to their confessions and their doctrine, has uh, was very early to pick back up the scholastic um, form of doing theology. Which, hey, I'm a big fan of. St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm. I'm Absolutely. not. I'm not against it. I love to get those clear distinctions and that that clear thinking. So they had people like Francis Turton, or you know, other scholastic Peter Martyr Vermigli, and these people were basically modern Reformed Protestant schoolmen. And in the Lutheran tradition, you had something very similar. So following Melanchthon and his emphasis on Aristotle, you had people who were thinking in very categorical terms. In England, um, and this is maybe an accident of history and maybe it's on purpose, but you had a little more of a reserve. And to some extent, um, I think we can say that the human the christian humanism of people like erasmus had a last and you know um early melanchthon had a lasting effect on cranmer and the successing uh divines which is to say that they were more interested in maybe even for pragmatic reasons carving out etching out sort of the no-nos the the error on either side of a dogma than saying everything that could possibly be said about the dogma itself. Absolutely. Um, and, and this is, you know, uh, one thing that makes Anglicanism sort of uh, a, a bone of contention with many Reformed and yeah. Lutheran friends. Um, but it is, you know, one way in which uh, on the confessional level, Look, the 39 Articles is just shorter than the Westminster Confession, and it's shorter than the Book of Concord. It's shorter even than the Augsburg Confession, right? So, so there's, uh, as far as the precise content that is required of clergy when they subscribe to our confessions, um, there's, there's less just bodily dogma that that they for sure need to sign on to but that doesn't make us without convictions or doesn't mean that um certain reformational distinctions like distinctives like uh justification by faith alone and christ alone uh aren't clearly stated because they are in the 39 articles and um the homily on justification and so, and and frankly, um, I don't know how you feel about this, Andrew, but I think that one of the biggest differences, and perhaps the most notable one, is that while the Reformed have a large um, 
Confession, and the Lutherans have the Book of Concord, Anglicans have the Book of Common Prayer. And that serves a special role as a formulary and a guide to worship. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. Like, with Anglicanism, you know, a lot of people in our, in our worst state, it looks like anything goes. But that is not adhering to the classic traditional form of Anglicanism. If you truly adhere to what is an Anglican, we have boundaries of faith, just like uh, the Lutherans, the Reformed, and Roman Catholics, for that matter, uh, with their guidance from uh, uh, the Council of Trent and later councils, for that matter. And so the, the boundaries that we have, you know, I always think of it in a very elementary way of, like, a farmland, you know. And we have fenced off, you know, what is and what is not an Anglican, you know. And these fences include the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 Articles, and also includes, you know, the, uh, the obviously the Holy Scripture, which is the ultimate authority for uh for any anglican mm-hmm. and as attached to the book of common prayer is our ordination services called the ordinal and that fences in our theology our doctrine our practice and if you're picturing this form i would say that the boundaries of anglicanism actually run <laughs> the fences run right through three other properties next to them you know we're not good neighbors we run our fences through three people and what do i mean by that you know we have our reformed brethren on one side of us we've got lutherans as our other next door neighbor and in the back we've got roman catholics and eastern orthodox and the fences cross over on those properties and i say that to emphasize that it's not that we pick and choose what we want it's that anglicans when we defined our faith you know through the work of especially thomas uh, cramner who was an archbishop uh for the Church of England, is really we look at you know what is Christianity, and when we find agreement with uh, those traditions, we run the fence through those property uh, lines in order to show that, in fact, we do uh, agree with many of the great Christian traditions, but mm-hmm. we do have distinctives where, you know, you look at that property and you see that hey, only the Anglicans have. This section of property, you know, it's not that property line is not crossing over into some other neighbors. And uh, that's the way I, tr- I kind of illustrate it in my mind's eye. And uh, I think that's good for Anglicanism because ultimately, when our formularies were founded, it was a question of, you know, what is the truth? You know, what is the Christian faith? And where we find agreement with brothers and sisters elsewhere, good. You know, we're not trying to. We're not trying to stretch right. our faith. We're just simply trying to go after the classic, biblical, ancient faith. And our boundaries are those 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayer, you know, and the ordinal that's attached to the Book of Common Prayer. Absolutely. Uh, from the south up to the heartland, that farm reference uh, made complete <laughs> sense to me. I don't know about all of our listeners, but <laughs> maybe maybe we'll draw the boundary. It'll be a, if if anyone listening wants to make a fun cartoon about what our what the Anglican farm looks like, we'd love to see it. So you know, send it on in. Um, if you don't get this, if you can make a city reference, a more urbanized version, right? I'm game for that too. So. Yes, something that involves alleyways and and lattes and. Whatever you city folk are into. <laughs> Some sort of city block reference. I don't know. I'm going to think about those over the weekend. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, I love that. And, and I, I agree. To part to some extent, this whole conversation needs to be framed within the context of 
hey, each of these traditions is in its own way doing its best to be faithful to the scriptures and the wisdom of the church going back to the New Testament. And But they're all doing it in their own way, and we can have disagreements as to what that faithfulness looks like. And in some ways, what makes Anglicans different from other uh, sort of magisterial Protestant groups especially is not even... It's less a matter of dogma and more a matter of sensibility, right? For us to emphasize the prayer book as as a um, as one of our formularies and to have our ordination services as one of our formularies says something about what the Church of England intended to preserve that wasn't really on the minds necessarily of the other Lutheran and Reformed uh, brethren on the continent. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't end up having to figure out liturgy or polity in their own way, but this is something that we valued and historically we're going to um, include as part of what makes us um, who we are as a living um, Christian people. Uh, and on that note, what, if anything, Andrew, would you say that we have to offer as sort of a, a, a branch to people coming from a, a Baptist or kind of evangelical or non-denominational uh, tradition? Yeah, that's that's a good question because... Although I was raised uh, United Methodist, uh, I've spent many of my uh, formative years in a Baptist, a Southern Baptist and non-denominational context, because frankly, that's where uh, the gospel was clearly presented to me. Mm-hmm. I thank God for that. So to my brothers and sisters in those uh, traditions, you know, thank you for sticking up for the faith and for presenting the gospel so, so well. So many of you who may be listening to this, I know this, this you know, majority of the podcast may be saying, this is drinking water from a fire hose. You know, what does this have to do with anything? Like you mentioned, Jesse, I, I don't even know if the sacrament thing is, is a real thing that I should be even concerned about. What I would say is if you're investigating it and you're wondering what in the world are we talking about, the best way to look at Anglicanism is to see it as a link to the historic Christian faith. And I don't mean simply the Middle Ages where the Reformation occurs, but to look back to the ancient faith, to the faith of the early church, the faith of the apostles. And what really helped me in terms of becoming Anglican is I started reading the Apostolic Fathers, the earliest Christian writings outside of Scripture, and noticed that there was a liturgy, noticed that Mm -hmm. communion, the Lord's Supper, was a regular occurrence, noticed that those early Christians immediately believed but there was something more to taking communion than simply sitting back and remembering Jesus fondly. Right. So for the Baptist or the non-denominational Christian, you know, if you're just trying to wonder what is, you know, Anglicanism, you're getting a, a good taste about our theology. But if you're curious on why should I investigate it further, you know, I would say the best way to investigate it is to go back to the early church and read, you know, a Justin Martyr, you know, to go back and read yeah. um, a Clement, 
uh, of Alexandria, to go back and, and read uh, those earliest Christians and see that the worship that we do, especially in the American context, uh, is not linked really to the historic early Christian uh, movement. And from there, you'll very quickly notice that in those early church writings that there's bishops and that there's priests and deacons. And that kind of shocked your system. It shocked me when I was a Baptist and non-denominational Christian to see that, the polity. So the, the doctrine, you know, emphasized sacraments as being something more than just remembering that the polity of church included bishops, you know, and even uh, priests, uh, presbyters uh, in the English. And that is what kind of made me say, hmm, I don't see this in my local church. You know, there's typically good doctrine of the gospel being preached, but I don't see this link. There's things that have been cut out over the years. So why Anglicanism then? Because we emphasize a faith that is reformational and historical that on our i always say this on our best days in our best parishes i should say that represent and emulate you know anglicanism as we me and jesse are talking about you're gonna see this historic link of reaching back you know across thousands of years to the early church and preaching the gospel faithfully and that's the church that I wanted to be a part of because I didn't want to be a part of something that was, you know, constantly new from week to week or that was constantly trying to, you know, divine and figure out, you know, what did those early Christians do? Go back to the sources. It's a reformational, you know, mantra, you know, ad fontes, you know, to the sources, to the sources. And, and what it meant was to go to the source of scripture, but I also encourage Go to those first early church fathers, you know, they're not perfect in what they're saying, but you'll notice a common thread through all of them. And that common thread is that there is a liturgy of faith, that baptism is more than a a sprinkling of water, you know, that taking the communion is a serious and holy act. And you'll also see reformational principles of faith is what saves you. So where is that liturgical church with the polity we're talking about? with an emphasis on sacraments are more than just something you do to remember Jesus. And that's where I come to a full stop and hit the Anglican church, which is, you know, Protestant and Catholic, you know, reformational and historical and which tries its best on its best days and in its good parishes does represent a biblical, faithful, classical, uh, Christianity, um, where, Hopefully, mere Christianity is truly embodied. Amen. Well, hey, I, I uh, couldn't have said it better. I, I love that. I think, yeah, what, what I would want to emphasize would simply be, look, the, the things that you guys prize the most, hopefully, are the gospel and uh, fidelity to scripture and, you know, the, the life of, of the local church. Um, living out both and if that's true then you'll find um that anglicans actually something that makes us stand out from you know other traditional or liturgical churches is that we on our best days (laughs) classically understood are prizing most highly exactly those things Mm -hmm. the truth that we're saved through our faith in jesus and the fact that 
Um, nothing that cannot be proved through Scripture should be uh, held as something necessary to be believed for salvation. I mean, our, our formularies have, have told us what's important. And if you're a, sort of a classical evangelical or non-denominational or Baptist Christian, um, hopefully that's the case for you as well. But as you said, Andrew, um, you know, I, if you're listening to this podcast, I have to think that you're someone who's interested in theology and dogma and church history, and you're probably um, on the brighter side of things, and you're curious, and you'd like to know more about these things, or you have already worked to know quite a bit about these things. And I think for a lot of people in that situation— Coming from yeah the same tradition, I, I was raised Pentecostal and went to non-denominational evangelical churches. Um, you may find yourself doing exactly what Andrew did and saying, hey, why does my church look so very different from what I'm reading about here in the Church Fathers or in the history of the church? And I all I can say is that's a good question to be asking if it does <laughs> and and um and one of the best ways to learn about how anglicans sort of uh understand or receive all of these all of these insights from scripture and from the tradition is get a hold of a 1928 book of common prayer or a 1662 book of common prayer something in the classical tradition and just hang on to it, look at it, read it. Um, there are resources for learning how to pray morning and evening prayer and just pour over. If you want to know about Anglican theology or what Anglicans do believe and how we worship, just read it cover to cover, pour over it. Um, look at those 39 articles, look at the ordinal, look at the various services and look at, Something, if, if something that you've sort of traditionally thought of was like, well, that's Catholic stuff. Look at the way the Anglicans word the canon of Holy Communion, right? When we talk about the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice of Christ versus maybe the way Roman Catholics talk about it. You know, you're going to find that Anglicans are doing things with the evangel and the sacred scriptures in mind. Um, and on that note, uh, speaking of evangelicals and the evangelical tradition, Andrew, you were reminding me recently of a, an article from the gospel coalition. Yes. And, uh, it is titled, so if the listener wants to find it, nine things you should know about Anglicanism. It was done back in, let's see, June of 2014 by Joe Carter. And I was looking over it, and I thought this may be something good to discuss because I know a lot of uh, evangelicals you know, probably saw this article when it came out. You know, it's probably been forgotten. It's now, goodness, been almost five years. But I remember when this article came out, and I looked over it, mm -hmm. and you know, some things I was like, oh, that's true, that's correct. And other things I'm like, ah, I worded it a little bit differently. So it, it may help the listener who's coming from this faith background to kind of hear our take on this article. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Well, how about um, we take turns and we can uh, go as rapid fire or take as much time as we think needs. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this number one uh, statement here. 
and let you respond, and maybe uh, you read number two, and I'll give it my best. Sounds like a plan. Number one, Anglicanism is a tradition within Christianity comprising the Church of England and churches which are historically tied to it or have similar beliefs, worship practices, and church structures, with a membership estimated at about 80 million members worldwide. The Anglican faith, including both those within the Anglican Communion and Anglicans outside of it, is the third largest Christian communion in the world, after the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. Yeah, I don't have too many qualms with that. It's kind of a accurate encyclopedia, excuse me, encyclopedia uh, definition yeah. of, of Anglicanism there. And uh, don't really have too much to comment on. Right on, yeah. It, it's uh, There's always going to be this issue in, in the modern context of liberalizing churches and maybe the conservative split-offs and where do you draw the line when it comes to counting them up and who's Anglican and who isn't. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I agree. It's very very uh, encyclopedia. Yeah. Yeah, the one, one thing I'll say is don't jo- join a church based off the global numbers because, I mean, you can find churches, like you said, who don't represent that faith tradition, but, you know, wrap themselves and cloak themselves with the name of uh, mm-hmm. that faith tradition. But, uh, you know, interesting little fact there that being the third largest communion, but then again, Roman Catholics say, look, we're the biggest by and far, so join us. So <laughs> right. that's my one little caveat is don't join a church based off of its worldwide numbers. Look at the faith. Look at the doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's not a competition, people. <laughs> it's not a numbers game. So, speaking of faith and doctrine, we'll go to number two. The Anglican faith is often considered a Reformed Catholicism, a hybrid between the Catholic and Protestant faiths. For instance, one key dividing point between Anglicanism and Catholicism is the issue of absolute authority. Yeah, um, well, first of all, coming from an Anglican perspective, I guess I... I'm not used to people saying, I, I don't like, if someone says, well, what do you think of the issue of absolute authority? I don't necessarily know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what they, what they seem to mean here, and I'm, I'm clicking on the one-off article, um, I'm going to guess is primarily, uh, well, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the authority lies on the church. The church decides what is scripture. The church decides what is the um, valid parts of tradition and what parts are either small t tradition or um, just to be ignored altogether. Um, And in the Anglican, as in the Protestant faiths, uh, scripture being God-breathed and authoritative is the norm that norms everything else. It is the source of authority, and it is also the measure by which we uh, we look and evaluate both the church and um, the traditions that have been uh, upheld or cropped up throughout history. So, absolutely. The other thing that I would take a a small point of contention is using the term hybrid between the Catholic and Protestant yeah. faiths. You know, like, because I understand that if you look at it, you know, for listener and you're not Anglican, that's what it looks like. You know, fair enough. You know, when I came into Anglicanism, that was my thought. This is a hybrid. 
but it's not. It's not some mutant, you know. Let's just lop this off here, lop that off here. Let's just put them together, and voila, you got Anglicanism. And now, Anglicanism is really looking at uh, the faith and, and going back to those boundaries, defining the boundaries. And right. by defining our boundaries, it happens to cut through the property lines of other faith traditions. So it appears a hybrid, but it's not some created mutant to be intended no. to be a hybrid. It's, it's just not a of, Prius. Exactly. <laughs> it's not a Prius. <laughs> so, I don't know, what does that make us? Like a Tesla, you know? We look like oh, a traditional car, hmm. but we run off electric, you know? I don't know. We'll work on that. I like uh, that now. question to be continued. I like it. <laughs> So we'll go to point three. The yes. Oh, oh, did you, okay, uh, yeah. I'll read for you. Sorry. Oh, that's I'm, right. Yeah. I'm just slow on, slow on the uptake here. Number three, the Anglican Communion is an international association of churches consisting of the Church of England and of national and regional Anglican churches in full communion with that mother church. The status of full communion means that there is mutual agreement on essential doctrines and that full participation in the sacramental life of each church is available to all communicant Anglicans. There are also groups, such as those aligned with the continuing Anglican movement and the Anglican realignment, whose relationship to the worldwide Anglican communion is still being negotiated. Andrew. I would throw this completely out. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why is... I don't want to spend too much time on it because this is trying to introduce people to Anglicanism. But the intricacies and the politics of what's happening with Anglican communion right now is probably an entire series of a podcast in and of itself. But I would right. say the short and sweet of it on, on what you need to, to know is that that first part of the sentence is close to being accurate. Anglican communion, international association of churches, like we were talking about earlier, kind of akin to the Eastern Orthodox has the Church of England, the national and regional Anglican churches. But then it says in full communion with that mother church. That's where you'll get into the politics of not quite. You'll have the Anglican Church of North America here in the U.S., which is in communion with the vast majority of uh, Anglican uh, churches across the world, but is not in communion with the Church of England. And in the eyes of not only the ACNA, the American Church, but also in the eyes of these global Christians uh, on the continent of Africa, you know, in Asia, uh, worldwide, they view ACNA just as much a member of the Anglican Communion as the Church of England itself. So that's getting a little bit deeper in the politics. I won't belittle that point anymore. And I'll point out that to, to these new listeners, if you hear the continuing Anglican movement, to summarize it quickly, that is a body of, of Anglicans who departed the Episcopal Church in the 1970s, typically due to the ordination of women. The Anglican realignment is the more recent departure of Anglicans from the Episcopal Church, which occurred uh, late 90s to early 2000s, that formed the Anglican Church of North America due to the issue of homosexual ordination uh, uh, of bishops. And essentially you've got two blocks of uh, conservative Orthodox Christians who departed over different issues. But you will find in the Anglican realignment uh, many Anglicans who agree with the continuing Anglicans that women's ordination is an issue. So if you hear those terms you know, in the news or as you read about Anglicanism, there's a really quick, very base-level definition of what those groups are. Perfect. 
I like All it. right. We'll pick up with number four there. Although joined in a global communion, Anglicanism has no international juridical authority, and each province is wholly self-governing. The 34 provinces, which I'll say this list, their provinces is typically a national church, 34 national churches, four united churches, which are churches in which the faith traditions of like Presbyterians and Anglicans, etc., congregationalists, were joined together under an Anglican banner. Yeah, it's, like Church of India, I believe. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I didn't realize there was four of them, but I do remember that the church uh, over in, in India is like that. And there's six other churches of the Anglican Communion are autonomous, each with their own governing bishop and governing structure. Some take the form of national churches, such as England, Canada, and Japan, while others are collections of nations, such as in Central Africa and South Asia. Or geographical regions, such as, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Vanuatu and Solomon Islands. Some churches are extra-provincial. For example, Bermuda aligns with Canterbury, the Church of England, or outside the Anglican Communion altogether. Justin, thoughts? Ah, yes. Well, um, so again, this sort of is complex and related to the sort of messy situation that you described earlier which I, I think we should just come out and say that this situation is messy exactly because um, there are questions of theological orthodoxy within certain provinces that have caused other provinces to um, say you know what we're not in communion with you but we're in communion with all these other people. And so it is an issue of um, error, and it is an issue that is um, serious and that needs is in need of resolution. Uh, but as far as each being uh, wholly self-governing, I'm not sure if I fully agree with that. I mean, certainly each uh, province or church or what have you, will have their constitution and canons, but uh, certain churches, which are sort of officially within, uh, say, communion with the Church of England and show up for the Lambeth conferences, are technically supposed to have um, certain instruments of communion that are used to uh, regulate their actions and there are disciplinary measures that can be taken although uh, there's been an issue with that where um, the Episcopal Church has uh, not basically acknowledged the authority of this larger um, instrument of communion to uh, to change their actions when it comes to uh, homosexual ordinations and they've persisted in certain um, practices which have been a real conscience-shaking uh, situation for these other churches. So it's messy. Um, there are ways in which many of these churches come together and agree and have accountability amongst themselves, but it is true that they all have their own in independent or individual although I wouldn't say necessarily independent, but individual uh, canons that they follow. Yeah, and I think this next uh, point, bullet point five, or paragraph five, really goes into what you're talking about. You talked about the, the instruments of unity 
and uh, it really kind of dives in there on you know what is you know uh, what are these instruments. Um, I can't remember if, if, if oh. I read next or you read next. Oh, but. I'll read it and okay, uh, okay. and you can uh, tease it out here. Five, the churches of the Anglican Communion are linked by affection and common loyalty and in communion with the See of Canterbury. The term See refers to the seat of a bishop. Thus, the See of Canterbury refers to the position held by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest-ranking bishop in Canterbury, one of two ecclesiastical provinces which constitutes the Church of England. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the spiritual leader and, quote, focus of unity, unquote, for the Anglican Communion and head of the three instruments of unity the Archbishop calls the once-a-decade Lambeth Conference, chairs the meeting of primates, i.e. chief archbishop or bishop of a province, and is president of the Anglican Consultative Council. The Archbishop of Canterbury is considered the primus inter pares, the first among equals of the College of Primates. Andrew. So this is yeah, this is where you're getting to kind of two two points is that it's organized uh, akin to the Eastern Orthodox Church and Roman Catholicism prior to uh, some of the papal uh, power being consolidated uh, during the late Middle Ages of having this Lambeth Conference of having the Archbishop as the first among equals, which is what the uh, Pope in Rome traditionally was. Uh, for councils and uh, meetings that uh, that he led, and then when you get into these words of like instruments of unity, you know, linked by common affection or by affection and common loyalty, you're getting into a lot of the more political organized bodies within the Anglican Communion office as to what that office terms or defines as who's in and who's out as to any given particular church. And there's a lot of bone of contention to to gloss over it a bit as to does that make you an Anglican or is it adhering to these formularies to the doctrine of the church? Does that make you an Anglican? So part of this right. debate, yeah, is, is really going into, you know, is ACNA in or out? Well, the Orthodox bishops would represent, I think, 50 million Anglicans, so well over half the communion say, yes, you're in because you're faithful to the formularies of the church. Whereas the, the Anglican Communion Office, located in Canterbury, says, no, you're out because we don't recognize you and we don't invite you to this meeting, uh, which is titled the Lambeth Conference, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the next paragraph. Well, let's get to it then. Okay. Sounds good. Since there is no binding authority in the Anglican Communion, the Archbishop of Canterbury has no authority outside his own province. The, quote, instruments of unity, close quote, serve to ho hold the various churches and provinces together. The Lambeth Conference is a gathering of bishops, meeting every ten years. The meeting of primates take place every two or three years for consultation on theological, social, and international issues. And the Anglican Consultative Council brings together bishops, presbyters, deacons, laymen and women and youth to work on common concerns. Yeah. Uh, one more encyclopedia-like uh, entry. Um, so, yeah, I think this is... Huh, 
Gen generally true, although the idea that there is quote no binding authority in the exactly. Anglican communion <laughs> makes me really uncomfortable when I tend to think that the sacred scriptures and Almighty God are you know, are are binding um, on all. Christians, and again, I, I think, you know, whether by mistake or on purpose, that uh, this kind of underscores some of the issues that you were just mentioning. Um, hey, if I lead pagan or satanic worship out of my quote-unquote Episcopal or Anglican uh, church, but then I want to show up to the communion meetings, and that's okay. But my neighbor down the street, he's not in the club. But he actually believes the Bible is this, you know, what's going on here? Clearly yeah. there's there's an issue. But. It's a bit of a contradiction from paragraph two where it claims that Anglican, Anglicanism is a Reformed Catholicism. It's some sort of hybrid between Catholic and Protestant faith. Well, there's got to be some form of authority. Uh, and here we are, six paragraphs in without any definition as to what doctrine, you know, what really governs yeah. the Anglican faith. Yeah, it, it may be a bit of description rather than maybe the way pre, you know, the, the Anglican tradition ought to be. But um, on we're that, there. it gets yeah, better. We're, we're getting there. On, on that note, let me uh, read this next bit, and you can uh, respond. Seven, the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, also known as the Lambeth Quadrilateral or the Lambeth Chicago Quadrilateral. Ooh, so many options, encapsulates the communion's unifying doctrine and serves as a primary guide for ecumenical discussion with other church Christian denominations. The Lambeth Conference of 1888 passed Revolution 11, which states, quote, that in the opinion of this conference, the following articles supply a basis on which approach may be by God's blessing made toward home reunion. A, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as, quote, containing all things necessary to salvation, unquote, and as being the rule and ultimate standard of faith. B, the Apostles' Creed as the baptismal symbol and the Nicene Creed as the sufficient statement of the Christian faith. C, the two sacraments ordained by Christ himself, baptism and the Lord's Supper, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and of the elements ordained by him, and D, the historic episcopate, locally adapted in the methods of its administration to the varying needs of the nations and the peoples called of God into the unity of his church. End of quotation. Ah, doctrine. We're getting there. <laughs> yes. So... I would say that the important thing is that uh, this is accurately described as being, you know, the guide for ecumenical discussion with other Christian denominations. So that when Anglicanism has discussions with uh, Presbyterians, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Baptist communions, you know, you name it, that this is kind of the guidepost of if there's to be some sort of reunion of our faiths, here's where we start. It's with the Holy Scriptures for salvation. The Apostles' Creed, not seeing Creed, as the sufficient uh, statement of what the faith is. The two uh, gospel sacraments, and then the historic uh, episcopate, which intriguingly is mentioned as locally adapted uh, in the methods of its administration uh, mm -hmm. to the needs of people across the world. That that one I've never really heard fleshed out, but I've often thought, Jesse, to digress for two seconds, that in 
in terms of our Presbyterian friends, you know, we have a polity difference that uh, they do not have bishops, although I would say that they don't have named bishops. They have teaching elders right. that very much function like a local bishop at every church, which, uh, frankly, is very much the uh, classical model at the earliest church of having a bishop surrounded by his presbyters and deacons. Um, so I would think one could argue that if there was a reunion between Presbyterians and the Anglican faith, that that model could be locally adapted to where, once again, you'd have a bishop per church, per parish. But to make a long story short, this shows here is where we can begin the conversation and have a serious discussion on reunion. Yep, and to add to that, all I would say is that what the Anglicans say is sort of the the guide and the lowest common denominator for having a discussion about intercommunion with another church is not the same thing as all that's required theologically to be Anglican. Agreed. And we're going to move on to see that as um, our own tradition, our own standards for ourselves, not for communion with others, are going to be more particular and uh, specific. So I'll go to paragraph 8. The Book of Common Prayer is the foundational prayer book of Anglicanism. In 1549, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, created the book by translating Latin Catholic liturgy into English and infused the prayers with Protestant Reformed theology. The book became one of the great works of literature and influenced both the English language and the liturgies of other Christian traditions, particularly marriage and burial rites. For example, Dearly Beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Well, there's so much that could be said about the Book of Common Prayer, but everything that was said here I uh, wholly agree with and approve. Likewise. Like you said, you could go deeper, and I would add that, you know... We probably will understand, one yeah. day. <laughs> if you want to understand the... The doctrine and practice, go to the Book of Common Prayer. If you want the theological points, you know, succinctly, go to the Third Nine Articles. Yep. All right. Well, I'm going to read this last one for you to respond to, and then we'll, uh, we'll close up this conversation, which obviously it's not um, the end end to the conversation. It, the conversation will continue, but uh, I'll read this, and then I look forward to seeing what our listeners have to say about all this Anglican distinctives. There are numerous terms that are unique to or have distinctive meanings when referring to Anglicanism, such as bishop, a successor to one of the twelve apostles who has been consecrated by other bishops, archbishop, a bishop who has additional responsibilities, communion, refers to both the Lord's Supper and the Anglican Communion. Curate, an assistant to the person in charge of a parish. Deacon, the initial level of being ordained in the Anglican Church. Diocese, fundamental unit of structure of the Anglican Church, which contains many parishes and churches. Episcopal Church, the U.S. province of the Anglican Communion calls itself the Episcopal Church. Parish, smallest unit of administration, usually consisting of only one church. <coughs> Province, 
administrative division of the church that is bigger than a diocese and smaller than the whole world. <laughs> Rector, a priest who is the leader of a self-supporting parish, and vicar, the priest in charge of a parish or mission that is supported financially from the outside. Andrew, take it away. All good there or something to quibble with? You know, there'll, there'll be some things to quibble with, but let me just say it like this. If you're coming from a uh, non-denominational uh, Baptist or Protestant background, or even maybe Presbyterian, and you're not used to these terms, although I think our Presbyterian uh, brothers and sisters will, will understand a lot of these, it's a good place to go to for this article to get a quick primer on these words, because mm-hmm. these words will get thrown at you if you're like me and you're inquiring into Anglicanism. And people presume, like we have presumed in probably a lot of our conversation today, <laughs> that you know what we're talking about. So this is a nice way to get a cheat sheet on what are these words uh, and what do they mean generally. Uh, I won't jump into too much detail. As a deacon, I will say this, though. It says currently that a deacon is, quote, the initial level of being ordained in the Anglican Church. So two mm-hmm. things. It is true that before you become a priest or a presbyter, you must be ordained a deacon. However, there are permanent deacons who will always right. remain deacons. Just like in your Baptist church or Presbyterian church, there are those of you who are deacons or you know you have friends who are deacons. And that is a vital role in the church. So it's not just a stepping stone. Now, I will confess that historically Amen. in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Anglican Church uh, during the early parts of the Reformation, it was just treated as a mere stepping stone. But the classical understanding, something that we have reformed ourselves recently, is bringing back the, uh, the permanent uh, diaconate to serve the church, serve the poor, take communion to those who are sick, uh, and to help out uh, the congregation. Everything you read about in Acts as the, the, the duties of a deacon. But uh, there's some other quibbles. I'll save those for later. <laughs> but I just want to make that point. So. Excellent. Good point, and you're the right man to make it. Um, Well, I think we've gone long enough. This will probably have to wrap up our show on everything you could possibly hope to want to know about Anglicanism. uh, Probably to be continued. Definitely Uh, to be continued. I would encourage people to add in there, you didn't address this, you didn't address that, or I've got questions. So we could do a part two or probably part three and who knows how many more to make sure yes. we respond to listeners and jesse had an excellent recommendation of get yourself a copy of the 1662 or 1928 uh, book of common prayer we both love traditional language it took me time to get used to it so let me say this i don't right. want anyone to be instantly turned off but if you're gonna go with a quote-unquote modern language version i strongly encourage you to go to the reformed episcopal church website and you can download a PDF of the modern, modern language Book of Common Prayer that they've done, yes. which is technically the 2003 uh, REC Book of Common Prayer. Throwing all these numbers at you, but hear me out. This version of the Book of Common Prayer, the Reformed Episcopal Church, to their credit, took the 1662, which is a British Book of Common Prayer, took the 1928, the American Common Prayer, and basically, I wouldn't say they merged them together, but they brought the best of the 1662 and put it back into the 28, and they made a modern language version of it. So if you're struggling with some of you know, the these and the thous don't bother me, but if you're struggling with some of the uh, older words, 
they lightly, gently update those words, so it's a lot easier for you to read uh, and pray. So at least take a look at that if you're intimidated by the traditional language. But that being said, go traditional. You'll you'll reward yourself. You'll catch so many more cultural references uh, and literary references that you never realized were coming from the Book of Common Prayer. Yes, go trad. It's rad. <laughs> but um, if you want the training wheels, and there's no shame in that, um, yeah, just pop into Google. I just tried it. R E C, Modern Language. BCP for Book of Common Prayer, and it's the first thing that pops up. So and we're easy not to getting find. paid for this either. So this right. is free <laughs> reference. Like <laughs> if we yeah, if we ever reference someone, it's usually just because we like what they're up to and they they did a good job. So that's true. Yes. That being said, yes, please. If you have any insights or responses or angry messages, send them to the Facebook page, Miserable Offenders on Facebook. That's where you can find us. Um, like and, and subscribe like and subscribe <laughs> that's right and share share with a friend if yes. you liked this then maybe someone else will too that's that's what we're hoping so thanks again and God bless have a good one it was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.